You are listening to AVFC Extra, a no-nonsense look at the club we all love. Brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast. Hello and welcome back to AVFC Extra. My name is Dan Rowenson. Today filling in for James Rushton, but please do bear with me because I'm nowhere near as intelligent as James is. Joining me today, there are two people who definitely know what they're talking about, Patrick Rowe and Josh Williams. Gents, how are we? Yeah, I'm good. A bit cold and I'm not allowed to put the heat in on, so <laughs> suffering in my own room. I'm okay, mate. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm warm down my end. Um, but yeah, first, first appearance of the season on the Villapod, so uh, yeah, thanks yes. for getting me on. No, no worries. You've always been a, a well-received guest every time you come on and spoken. Uh, you usually come on with James Rushton. I'm, I'm filling in for James today and I'm far less intelligent than James is. So I'm literally just here to ask the questions and nothing more. I've even got my laptop in front of me with things written down. So do excuse me if I just keep looking at those. Um, first of all, though, just very easy. Just a general kind of overview of the game. Um, Pat, you were there. Josh, you've seen the full thing as well. Um, Pat, start with you. How did you see the game and, and the atmosphere? What, what did you think? In general, before the game, I felt like everyone was really excited. I went to a, a pub before, and everyone was getting pretty excited for the game. But then, uh, first ten minutes, it was a bit—it was electric. I thought, you know, we were pretty loud, and the style of play was quite exciting. I think Matty Cash had that header quite early on, and we mm. thought it was just amazing. I think the style of play was pretty evident from them. But obviously, Brighton grew into the game, and it kind of killed our momentum and killed the atmosphere a bit. I thought. I think the tension started getting a bit high. Everyone got a bit nervous and then obviously we relieved it in the last 10 minutes, so it was fine. But other than that, yeah, it was a bit of a nervous start, but it panned out quite well. Yeah, I thought it was a, quite a disciplined start, I thought. Um, not not too not too gung-ho, really. Not too front foot, even though I thought that was a possibility given, you know, Gerard's nature as a coach and as a player. I thought there was the possibility there with it being a home game and stuff that Villa would be very, you know, a bit of a high press early on and things like that. But, you know, it wasn't the case. It was kind of like a very much a don't concede uh, mm. approach, I thought. Um, and then if you end up making a goal, if you end up winning the game, so be it. Um, and obviously that was the case by the end of the match. But I think generally as a starting point, as a foundation to build from, I thought it was a good start, yeah. I almost made a joke on the podcast about having a swear jar for every time we mention Liverpool, but we can't have a Liverpool fan on and not mention Liverpool. So let's get it out of the way early doors. What's it like having Steven Gerrard, a club legend, manage another Premier League club? Have you got a bit of a soft spot for Villa now? Do you I feel like you've had a soft spot anyway because you always speak very well about Villa whenever you come on. Well, to be fair, a lot of that stems from the the, the feedback that I get. You know, the feedback's <laughs> generally very, very positive. So if people are praising me, I can't have any sort of issue, can I? But... Um, yeah, in terms of in terms of Gerard, it's, it is a bit strange, um, but it's nice because it's. I suppose one of the, the first proper player that I watched growing up is now mm. a coach. Um, whereas obviously you know Graham Soonis went into management and things like that, but I never saw Soonis play really. So to be able to follow Gerard, particularly in the Premier League, and you know everyone knows I'm very numbers focused and the numbers in the Scottish Premiership are not really as accurate. They're not really as reliable because Rangers are so dominant. So. From a numbers side of things, I'm interested to, to follow Stevie and, and see how he gets on and things like that. And obviously, from my perspective, being a Liverpool fan, Jurgen Klopp's contract is supposed to run out in 2024. I know Villa fans will not appreciate me saying this, but <laughs> it's just a natural thing to think about um, whether Gerard could be in a, a potential air next in line type thing. But 
we won't even go there. Eh? Yeah, we'll talk about positive feedback. There might not be any after you've mentioned that in the first <laughs> three minutes. So let's move swiftly on. Um, let's talk about about the game then. We'll come to you for this one part. Obviously, it probably affects the Villa fan more. When the team news came out at two o'clock, what did you think? With the injury news and different things like that, he, he had his hands tied and he could only do, do so much. I think Nakamba was always going to have to come in because Douglas Louise was out. Bertrand Traore not fit. Samson's probably not uh, fully fit to get firing. So he, he put the team out that we probably all expected. I think I I thought Ollie Watkins would play out wide to start with, and I thought there was promising signs there. Danny Ings back in the side after that little injury. I'm not sure what his injury was, but he's back inside. He was a bit of a bystander for most of it, which was a bit disappointing. I think someone just commented there saying the only worry they have is Ings and how he'll fit in. And I think one of my first reports for uh, Reach PLC was based off what Josh said about Ings, and it was her Ings offers a lot more than just being like a goal scorer. And dropping deep, so I don't know if he'll Gerald will try and get the best out of things in that way and drop him a bit deeper as things move on. But yeah, he did everything he can with the team news, I thought. Dannings was further down my agenda that we've written beforehand with the help of James. So we'll just go in now because Nathan's mentioned him that you know, it's a worry that Ings isn't quite slotting into the side, really. Um, on paper, he's a guaranteed goal scorer, isn't he? It's just not quite clicking. It's one of those. I don't think he's not been clinical apart from that. The only one I can, the glaring miss in my head that he's had is the the Wolves one where it was quite early on and he went the wrong side of the keeper and just, I think the keeper saved it or it went wild. Mm. Other than that, I think he's done as much as he can with what he's had. I think we've struggled to get the ball into his feet and get him on the ball and like supply him at all because we were playing the five at the back. I think him and Watkins struggled to form a partnership up top together and he'd rarely ever touched the ball. I think he's had like 14 touches of the ball on average or something stupid like that. The most promising game for me was probably, or a hint at what could happen, was the his build, like his role in the build-up for the Watkins goal against Spurs. Dropped a bit deeper, fed the ball off to him driving at the defence, fed the ball off to the target who had space then, and then he fired it across to Watkins. So there are promising signs. Obviously, he's a natural-born goal scorer and he is going to score. So the goals against Wolves, the Newcastle goal, which is a freak one, just shows his finishing ability. But yeah, I think it's not that worrying, but we do need to get him more involved. In the summer, I think I we did a transfers pod and I got asked about just Villa's general business. And I was generally positive towards it because of Villa, at the end of the day, have acquired good players. And that's 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 the main thing, really. But I was curious at the time. I remember flagging, like, you know, how, how is Smith going to fit these players in specifically? Because you've signed Danny Ings, who is a striker. You already have a fixed striker who plays every week, very, very injured. You've signed a wide player who basically spends all of his time on the flanks in Leon Bailey. And you've signed a player in Emmy Bundier who I suppose there's a little bit of both. Um, so I was curious to, to see how, how that was going to work, how that was going to fit. And I wrote a piece a few weeks back for, for the Birmingham Mail just on, I think, with the, with the business Villa have done, they've kind of tied the hands a little bit when it comes to systems and formations and stuff, if you want every player in his, in his best position, basically, because Watkins is a striker, Ings is a striker, so you have to play a front two. But then you also have Bailey, who's a wide player, so you have to play a, a front two that um, incorporates a system where you play a wide player as well, which 4-4-2 immediately comes to mind, or or a back five or something like that, but then you've got Bailey playing as a wing-back, which you don't want. And Wendy, yeah. It just feels like Wendy is floating a little bit, doesn't it? I'm sure we'll get to him. But in terms of Ings, I do think he he works best as part of a front two. And I think Gerard's early match, Gerard's first match, it, you know, he didn't play a front two, but he played like a, a 
fluid front three, I thought, where he were quite interchangeable and he was players at least around things for him to for him to work off and things like that. Um but I do think he conflicts a little bit with Emmy Wendy. What do you make of Watkins out wide then? Because you know Watkins is the number nine, he's the main striker, he was all of last season. And when you say it as bluntly as you know, you sign these players that you don't really fit into a system together, it is confusing even now, twelve games in of what system is best for Villa, you know. I'm a little bit reluctant to judge the new signings too much because they've had you know, 10, 11 games under Dean Smith and now the rest of the season under a new coach. So I'm willing to give them a, a bit of leeway. But like you say, we'll touch on Wendy, but he doesn't look particularly fit still after four or five months, which is a, is a concern in itself. Pat, your thoughts on Watkins out wide? Because that is one way of getting them both into the side, but Watkins' goal comes when he's shifted into the centre. Like Josh said, it was kind of like a fluid front three that he wanted to play. So it was like an inside forward. And I think I've, I've wrote about it like countless amount of times before uh, the first game. It was saying how he likes his forward, like the wider forwards, to be able to cut in quite early and get shots off on a goal. And obviously, I think there's a hint that it could happen to good effect because Watkins' goal was a perfect example of that. To be honest, I know it came when he was a striker, but it came from a wide position where he's cutting goal uh, inside and had yeah. a shot on goal and it's gone in. So that might be a hint that you can play Watkins and Ings together. I thought even in the first half. There's a few times that Watkins was driving at the defence. I think he was just slowing the play down a bit too much. Like There was a lot of one-touch passes going on and he was just slowing it down a bit and losing possession, but promising signs there, to be honest. What do we make of the, the two goals, by the way? Do they kind of show... I'm very much simplifying this here. You can tell this isn't James on this episode, but you know that first goal is a, a nice fluid counter-attack where it's calming possession at the back and playing it forward. And to be fair, it's a great finish and... I think I think Gerald called it world class, but the second goal, Mings keeping the ball alive, the overlapping fullback, and then and then the finish as well. Does that kind of show the the fight and desire that that Gerald will want to implement? That was something that Gerard's always offered throughout his career, you know, as a person and stuff. And I think it arranges that it boiled over a little bit a few times because I think early in his tenure, he was just suffering a red card every single week. <laughs> um, but if you look at Tyrone Mings and the type of person he is, I think he seems to be a player who certainly receives some form of boost, some some form, you know, that new manager kick type thing. Uh, so I think I think seeing Mings under Gerard will be interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. But in terms of the goals, I must be honest. Although I'd like it to be a, a difference, I think the goals just stem from. I don't think they stem from from Gerard. I don't think they stem from any specific team ploy or anything like that, or anything specific that has been worked on. I think they just kind of happened moments of individual brilliance. Mm. I think in Mings's look, just kind of making it happen by being in the right place at the right time. Um, I will say I did I did like what Watkins' goal in terms of the way it worked. You know, actually young carrying the ball forward, and I think was it El Ghazi who took the who took the yeah. players away and yeah. created the space inside for Watkins to cause into. That worked nicely, but. I think generally, uh, Gerard's early work was was mostly on the defensive side of the game, which is understandable because that's that's generally easier to to instill basically. Whereas the attack and play on the coaching on the coaching ground and things like that tends to come with time. You did a, a tweet. I can't remember the specifics. I think it was potentially about the press of uh, the, the top five leagues. And I said, I joked to you and said, "Oh, you know, stick Gerard Rangers in there," and it put him up level with Barcelona and Bayern Munich. <laughs> I think, which kind of shows how the, how the leagues compare. But how long will it take Gerard to implement a style of football and, and play the way he wants to play? It's not something that happens overnight. And, you know, we said in our post-match podcast, literally straight after the game, where I felt there were still times during that game where we didn't look great. You know, it's not been this massive transformation overnight and not a fat lot's changed. Obviously, there are some changes there. How long will it take for him to, to fully implement that kind of style of play, Josh? On the ball, I don't think we'll see proper Gerard Villa until 
probably next season, and he gets a, he gets a full um, you know, summer break with them and things like that, and he gets to work on those patterns and stuff, and maybe even recruit a few of his own, his own players, get rid of a few players who he's not particularly keen on. But I think defensively, at, even though it's been one game, I do think we saw a lot of what to expect from Gerard's range, uh, Gerard's Rangers, Gerard's Villa. Um, I think there was there was a lot to identify there with with what Gerard's trying to do and notable differences compared to when Smith was in charge. So I think defensively, we will see a fair bit. Maybe not on the high pressing side because I think that requires a bit more uh, cohesion, a bit more coaching behind the scenes. But in terms of what we saw against Brighton, I think that was very much, it was clear to see for me that that a new coach was in charge. It was clear to see that it was, you know, Gerard's type of, type of block. Um, but the attacking play, as I said, I think will take a bit more time. Yeah, I thought the style of just off the ball, what he, he outlined that he wanted to put his own stamp on things. I think it was immediate that was happening, like the traps he was setting and stuff. Um, but there were lapses in concentration. Obviously, that's going to happen because he's only been charged. Like, I think it was nine days. But yeah, the signs were there, but the consistency wasn't. So I think that will just come with time. Josh, do you think the players are fit enough to play that kind of high press at the moment? Because this is something that fans have, have been a little bit concerned with. That you know, Brendier is one that, that stands out straight away. But you know, it is an intense style of play. You know, to to implement. Are the players ready for that? Just on that, before I talk about this, what what is this about Buendia? Because I wasn't aware that he was suffering from any sort of fitness. Is, is he? There was a game when he went down with cramp after sixty odd minutes. Two I think. games. It was the Wolves game and Southampton. There's clearly a quality player in there, but he either seems to flag towards you know, 60, 70 minutes, where he goes down with some kind of cramp, or feels a bit lightweight. Is it, he's an easy one to dig out because he's a big sign and he isn't performing very well. And when they go off after. 65 minutes with cramp or something, we kind of look at it and go, why aren't you fully fit yet? Yeah, when I had to look at Bundy a few years back, I think his, his off-the-ball numbers, I think he posted decent pressure numbers and stuff like that, so I don't think a hype press is off the cards with Bundy. Um, and I wouldn't particularly say it's too much of a fitness thing. Um, don't get me wrong, if you're going to start pressing like monsters, it might be a bit different and you might get a few hamstring injuries and things like that. But I think generally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it down to a fitness thing. I'd put it more of a strategic thing, whether it makes sense for Villa to do it or whether it doesn't. I think if Villa were playing Norwich or even like an Arsenal maybe who are, who are absolutely wedded to building from the back, um, I think it might be a bit different and maybe Stevie would have pressed a little bit higher. But I think in this game, considering how capable Brighton are, how much he can stretch the play and things like that, um, and some of the players in their midfield, you know, Eves Basuma comes to mind as a player who's really difficult to dispossess and stuff. So, I think it just made sense to just show pressure a little bit more, but um, I think we'll see a bit of a high press in in, in matches where Villa are favourites and where Villa can really impose their game upon the, the opposing team. But in this game, I really liked how how Villa approached the game defensively. One of the first things I really noticed was it was quite clearly an emphasis on blocking the centre of the pitch. The centre of the pitch was very much Villa's, you know, and it, it was a case of like. We're going to block passing lanes to the centre of the pitch. We're going to occupy the centre of the pitch with players. Um, so you're going to build that wide. And if, if you want to play through us, fine. But we'll be stepping on your soles immediately. So you can play around us if you want. Um, and as a result of doing that, Villa suffered at times because of how good Lamptey is, basically. Uh, and Cucadella's good on the opposite side as well. Mm. But in terms of that being a, a strategy for the for the season, you know, moving forward, I think it makes sense. And... If you look at just some of the numbers behind the game, I think it was the most crosses that Brighton have put 
in in a Premier League game this season. And it was the most crosses that Villa have faced in a Premier League game this season. And I think it stemmed from uh, Gerard placing an emphasis on, you know, the middle of the pitch is ours. We're only allowing you to, to advance down the wide areas, basically. Pat, what did you think of his in-game management? Because a lot of talk about the, about the substitutions changing the game. Um, but even even the, the last substitution, I can't remember who it was. I think it was potentially El Ghazi, maybe. Well, but, you know, we but we're going to look to, to kill the game off with the second goal rather than sit back and, and be happy with a 1-0. Yeah, I think in previous years, Villa have probably been guilty of sitting back when we got a 1-0 lead and just hoping for the best. It was quite nice to see us still pushing for that goal. And yeah, the substitutions were inspired, to be honest. I think Dean Smith got stick for putting Ashley Young at centre-mid and it was West Ham game, but Gerard did the same here and he showed his composure, breaking play up and threading that ball in. And then another substitute, El Ghazi, was the one that peeled uh, the, the defenders away for Watkins to cut inside and we've scored so yeah, it was very good in-game management and once again it was a, it was a limited squad I thought like with what he could do with injuries and whatnot Morgan Sanson was warming up for quite a while Keenan Davis was warming up as well so I didn't know which direction he was going to go in really but no, he made the right decision I think Brighton pulled both their fullbacks off as well at, at one stage and, and brought Mopay on and that kind of changed the game from their perspective as well. A bit risk here as Villa fans of getting a little bit too carried away after after one win here, Josh, because Brighton are a good side to be fair and it's still a great result with a, with a clean sheet, but uh, still plenty of work to be done, isn't there? It is, but I don't, I don't think you're getting too carried away, to be honest. I think it, it could have easily been a nil-nil. I think that's that's worth saying, that's worth remembering. And I do think the attack and work will, will come with time. I think it'll take a bit of time for... For Gerard to get his attack and play, you know, into the players' heads, and it'll take a bit of time for him to just generally figure out who to play where, who is worth relying on as a starter all the time, and who's maybe better off from the bench as an impact sub. Um, but generally, I, as a Villa supporter, if, if I was a Villa supporter, I'd be very encouraged by specifically the defensive work that Villa showed. You know, it was a mid block; it wasn't too deep, it wasn't too high. As I said, very difficult to play through in the central areas. Emphasis of to build out wide and things like that for the opposing team and I think generally that's just very difficult to play against and if you look at Gerard's record in Europe when he was at Rangers I think that was the case obviously in Europe he's, he's very unlikely to, to to adopt a high pressing game just because of Villa just because of the uh, the quality of some of the European teams but generally I think Villa will become very difficult to beat um, and then more you know with time like in this game, Villa faced, I think it was six shots. That's very, very good. That, you know, if you face six shots every week, you will win the majority of games, or, or certainly you won't, you won't lose many at least. Um, so if it, on the defensive side, that'd be very, very encouraged, really. But as I said, the attacking side might just need a bit of patience. Let's um, look at a couple of individuals then, first of all. We've mentioned Brendier and Ings already. Um, John McGinn. I've written here that he started well and ended well, and I thought for a middling part of the game he didn't really do much, but we all think that he's going to be pretty important to the way that Gerard wants to play. Pat, what did you make him again on, on Saturday? Yeah, I thought his work rate was fantastic throughout the game, to be honest. He was also, I think he did that roulette spin that we've all, we all <laughs> like to share every single like, game. That's when you know he's back at his best if he's doing that. But yeah, his work rate was impeccable. Like When the fullbacks were getting forward, him and Ramsey were just shifting over, covering them, which is what I think Gerard's going to ask of the midfield. Mm-hmm. I think he's the, type, the perfect mould for Gerard's midfielders that he wants. Gerard's in the uh, in the past has said that John McGinn was like when he wanted to sign him for Rangers, he was saying, "Oh, John McGinn's your goal for it. That's where your goals are going to come from." And we might see John McGinn pushed forward a bit f- further forward than Gerard, but yeah, I thought it was like a like a classic John McGinn performance, like defensive work rate, quality on the ball, putting crosses in, beating players, 
low centre of gravity, hard to get off the ball. So, yeah, I was very happy with it. Is it just a case of finding more consistency from John McGinn? Because he has these games where he looks brilliant and then he has two or three where you think, what is he doing? Yeah, I think it's just finding the position he wants to play as well. Because I think he, he, he's he been in a midfield two, he's been in a defensive midfield role, he's been further forward in a cam. If we can just get him like, solidified in this one role, then I think he'll thrive and get some consistency under his belt. But he can't get the consistency if we're changing what, what he's doing each week, which is what Smith was doing at times, I thought. I mean, we're going to end up talking about every individual here because there's comments from Ian Robinson saying Ramsey's looking a player and Philip Johnson says that Nakamba went underrated in our side and he did very well against Brighton as well. Um, so Josh, I'll come to you on the midfield just as a whole because that has been a problem position for Villa but seemed to be heading in the right direction on Saturday. Yeah, I thought it was a good idea to use a midfield three, actually. I thought Nakamba was suited to, you know, it's just extinguishing fires and breaking up play and things like that. And as I said, if the ball comes through the middle of the park, straight away, Villa are kind of on you like dogs, really. And I think Nakamba's very suited to that style of play. Um, and then you've got John McGinn, who, uh, you know, as, as Pat just said there, he's, I think he's quite a... Quite an all-rounder, really, but he's also inclined to, to nick the odd goal. So hmm. when that's the case, I think it's nice to deploy those players as number eights rather than in a double six. Just because if he's a number eight, he, he can he can arrive late in the box and things like that. And I think McGinn's got a goal in him. So if he's part of a trio rather than part of a two, he's just got that bit more freedom to go more forward as opposed to, you know, more side to side. Um, and Ramsey does look a player. Yeah, it looks, looks very good. Just on point here as well, you know, just rolling the back a little bit. If you look at Gerard's squad when everyone's fit, if you're sticking with that front three, and it's, it, it could consist of Ings, um, Watkins, and probably Bailey's going to be a, a starter, I think there's the possibility there that you could potentially feel Buendia as number eight there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the system would have to be really good by then, I think. I think the system would have to be ingrained in them, so maybe it's a bit of a risk to do it now. But I think if you've got, Bailey, if you've got Buendia as eight, and you've got players ahead of him. One of the, you know, he does thrive as like a, you know, feeding players, his vision's good, through ball and things like that. So if he's got three runners ahead of him, I think it'll benefit him. And as I said, his defensive numbers, when I looked a few years back, were good. Um, but as I said, the system would have to be really good by that point. And he'd probably have to be alongside two others who are really, really good defensively and really strong physical. Target, who's, again, a bit of a Marmite player. I thought he was pretty good against Brighton if not, not not spectacular I've seen a few calls for a man of the match and then a few calls to say that he's nowhere near good enough to get rid of him so not quite sure how both of you two assess target but there's been links in, in various sources about a new left back and you know Gerard going out for elite left back or whatever the headline was in the sun I think uh, less said about that the better but I thought my target was alright I'm, I'm a big fan of target I thought this is his best game of the season I thought he was back to the type of player that we were seeing consistently last season three key passes seven tackles and I thought he dealt with Lamptey quite well, to be honest. Sorry, I'm just mute on Mark and he's cough. <laughs> yeah, I think he's I think he's decent, but I do think he's he's upgradable. If I'm honest, I think he's if you look at him as a profile, what he offers as a player, for me he is a a Premier League fullback. I think, but probably between twentieth and tenth. I think mm. he's inside that. I think he's aspiring for a little bit better, which will obviously seem to be. I, I'm just not sure he's really pushing that level. I think. Um, if you look at his skill set, for example, say, for example, compared to Cash on the opposite side, I don't see much attached to Target's game that you could apply in a tactical sense. You know, where you think, like, say, for example, with Cash, he's quite clearly a, a good runner, for example. So you could say, you could say to Cash, which, which Gerard seems to do, you know, arrive late in the box, that sort of thing. He's good with deliveries and things like that. I think Target's delivery is okay. 
but he's not particularly fast. He's not particularly strong. He just seems to be okay at everything. He's just, and his best performance would probably be a seven, possibly an eight out of ten or something like that. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but from an outside perspective, I think if you if you're aiming really really high, I think you could probably upgrade on target and just get a player who you could be a bit more. You could run the play through a bit more because I think from an opposition perspective, if Tiger's got the ball, I think you you probably feel relatively safe, maybe. Um, yeah. But you know, let me know. I'm being too harsh there. No, I think that some of that is fair. I would I would counter that with the fact that he was player of the season last year. But I think that some fans have got this theory <laughs> that he performed better when there was no crowd there, and maybe the pressure gets to him more so than than some players. Ian Robinson says target was at a consistent eight pretty much every game last season, which yeah, I think that's fair, but. This year he hasn't been, and you're right, you're right, Josh, to say that he is easily upgradable. To be honest, though, he, he's probably the type of player who you would try to upgrade, and by like maybe half a season later, he's back in the team because mm. he's, he is, as you say, very reliable. I think you could probably level at him. He's very reliable. He's, although as I said he's maximum capable of an eight, maybe he's probably very rarely drops below a six as well. So he is the type of player who you can probably count on. And as I said, if he did decide to upgrade by getting a more fashionable, fancy fullback, maybe that player wouldn't offer the same consistency. And as I said, Tiger could be back in the team before too long. So, yeah, maybe I'm being too uh, too harsh on it. You could probably level a lot of the things you've just said at Tara Mings, potentially. You know, some corners of the fan base don't rate him at all. Oh, I am a, a Tara Mings fan. We actually had a comment down the the last podcast saying, oh, you spent the 20 minutes digging out Buendia. Why don't you dig out Tara Mings? It's like, well, he scored in this game. Like, let's give him a break at some, at some stage. He played very well. Again, course for, for, for the man of the match from some quarters as well. But... Some of the things you've just said there about you know potentially being easily upgradable with with some funds available could be said about Torremings as well. I thought it was quite reactionary to be honest. I think though Gerard came out and said, "Ah, oh, I'm not going to challenge the captain, but he needs to. He's going to be given an opportunity to prove himself." And I think he took the first opportunity that he got. I think he was dominant in the air. He was decisive with his decision making and got rid of the ball when he read the game quite well and put put the ball into touch when he needed to. Just dealt with everything they they uh, asked, and he was also quite a big threat from the set of pieces. I thought there was a header, I think that was well saved, that was going in. I'm pretty sure from Jason Still, and yeah, and then obviously he got his goal with his right foot <laughs> running onto it at pace, <laughs> and he kept like, he kept the ball in as well. Good work, yeah, right? he did. Yeah, a bit of a hustle there. So yeah, I was I was very very impressed. I thought it was his best game of the season, to be honest, and I hope hopefully his confidence is high moving forward. Well, saying that about him and Target, where fans have maybe gone into the, this game and the Gerald here are thinking they might be two that drop straight out. That's uh, some reaction from those two. Josh, what about you? No, I, I would be very surprised if if Mings dropped out of the team on the Gerard. Um because you know what I've just been mentioning about Target. I think if you if you apply the same thinking to Mings in terms of what he offers in a tactical sense, he does offer perks. You know, he he is very physical, very tall, good in the air. Um, and he's quite mobile as well, considering the size and stuff like that. And he's obviously got character traits that suggest he's a bit of a leader because he's, you know, he's, he's worn the armband a few times and things like that. So, um, I think he he is a player you can you can build on. I, I I understand when it comes to frustrations around him because I think his biggest issue is probably his focus. Maybe at times I think. He's, yeah, I think he's prone to being making bad the odd bad decision, and I think he's almost prone to being almost playing in a way that's. I, I think sometimes he thinks he's better than he actually is, um, and that's not like a major criticism. But when it comes to the focus, 
I think Gerard in particular will help a lot with that because if there's one thing Gerard is and has been for as long as I've known him, it's been just incredibly focused, so driven and focused on the task at hand. You can see that in the way he speaks, you know, the press conferences and stuff like that. So I think he will get it in in Mings's head that you know you focus no casual elements to your game for ninety minutes. Um, but I do think th- those casual elements are attached to his game. They have been maybe growing in prominence over the past twelve months or so. Um, but I do think he's capable. He's got he's got the natural qualities to to be a really sensible player to to Villa's you know rise under Gerard. They say a lot, don't they, about that you know you don't just become a, a good coach because you're a good player. But those the mental aspect of, of winning every week and wanting to be competitive. That has to count for something, surely. Some areas of the Premier League throw a little bit of shade towards his way you know, when it comes to, like, you know, we never won a Premier League or that, you know, the, the slip and all that sort of stuff and the mm. compar- comparisons to, to Lampard and Scholes and things. And I'm just, obviously, I know what the Liverpool perception is. The Liverpool perception is that he's, he's Mr. Perfect, essentially. But mm. I, I am curious as to what, what it was like from a Villa perspective when he was first linked or when he was a player. I mean, I, I remember a specific goal he scored against Villa a few years back, free kick, last minute of the game. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a, a top player, top person, super focused. And um, I am really interested to see how he does a, a, as a coach in the Premier League now. Um, we will end soon. We've got a couple of questions from fans that have been that have been sent in as well. Somebody asked whether we were witnessing an, an actual step up and something tangible to, to look onto or whether it's just that classic first manager bounce kind of thing that you win the first game that they come under. Um, I assume you both agree that there is actual tangible challenges being made here. I did a report on it a few days ago. I looked at the report and it was like, new, new manager belt actually like gives you a, something on like 0.7 points on average like an increase in the first six games so it actually is a thing like the new manager bounce but I think there are changes uh, similar to Rangers he, he went in and he solidified the back them at the back they went from 50 goals to 23 I think then to 13 so that was clear from the first game that we just look, looked even out of our possession we looked very solid defensively like Josh said like it was it was disciplined so I think in terms of that area we are going to improve like straight away it is a step up because we've been leaking goals for fun recently. I agree, yeah. I think, as I said, I think the two goals, I do think they just kind of happened. So you could uh, you could put that down to a bounce, you could put that down to luck, whatever you want. So in that sense, I suppose, you know, they're not going to, you're not going to keep scoring goals like that, basically. Um, but on the defensive side of the game, that was not a fluke that Phil had only faced six shots. It was mm-hmm. not a fluke that Brighton put in the most crosses to put in any game. And Villa faced the most shots that they've faced in any game. Um, those are intentional, and if you keep working from that base, as I said, Villa are going to be very difficult to play against. I think uh, very difficult to play through. And obviously, one of the strengths of Mings in particular, and I think Courtney House as well, usually pokes very, very good numbers when it comes to this. Is, is the aerial strength? Yeah. So, if you are going to put lots of crosses in, and you've got centre halves who are good in the air, they get dealt with more often than not. So. I, I do think Villa will become a, a very difficult side to play against. A few, I, it comes to mind a few years back. I think Nuno Espirito Santos Wolves beat a few of the top teams, and you know the likes of City and Liverpool and Chelsea. Whenever it was going to Wolves, it was deemed as like oh, this potential banana skin here. I think Villa might transform into something like that, where like they, they do put a few scars on on the top sides and 
start making waves a little bit. Yeah, we had that record last season, didn't we? We were good against the top sides and our season fell apart because we were losing the games you expect to win. Um, the comment here from Joe, J-O-H, uh, what's his views on our youth and in playing them? That was very heavily mentioned by Perzo in his announcement. Um, Josh, you know from his record with the Liverpool Academy or under-18s manager, or under-23s, I can't remember what it was specifically, but any uh, anything you can shed on that side? Bottom line is though, if you if, if you if you're good enough and you apply yourself, I think that's the that's the crucial element if you apply yourself. If he, if he feels you're ready and you're, you're going to contribute on the pitch, you're not going to be you know, out-muscled or out-force or anything like that, or you're going to suffer mentally. I think he will play it. And Villa do seem to have quite a few kids who have got bags of potential. There's a lad, there's a lad up front who comes to mind. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name, but I think it's a it's a very long name. You're going to see. <laughs> Maker. Yeah. He comes to mind as a player who I, who I, 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 I tipped... Few, uh, a few days ago to me, mate, that I think he, he'll probably get um, a few games on the Gerard gradually, I think. But I don't think that's going to be an issue with Stevie. I think that'll, that, that'll be a natural thing. Gerard will just naturally play young players if they're ready. I don't think it'll be a case of, you know, you get some coaches, don't you, who just are very reluctant to do that. But mm. I think Gerard will do it. You can take your pick with the chopper makers, the two brothers, Caleb and Carney. It's also Jacob Ramsey also played in, in midfield on, on Saturday. He's the younger brother, Aaron's in the academy. Uh, for the Jim Bidace. There's a lot of players coming through the ranks that people are excited about and I think they beat Burnley yesterday, the under-23s, 4-1 at Bodymore. Gerard was watching on for that. So, yeah, if they're good enough, they're they're old enough, aren't they? I think is the phrase. So, you know, they, they will get chances at some point. Joanne Spear says, how will Super John McGinn cope without ketchup and iron brew? Now, this is a, I feel like this is becoming a bit of a meme now, isn't it? That a new manager comes in and bangs to ketchup. It was mentioned in the uh, the press conference to him as well. And then I think there was a story yesterday in the Telegraph, maybe, about fizzy drinks and desserts <laughs> and stuff like that. And people are like, I can't believe these Premier League footballers have got such bad diets. Why are they serving that in the canteen anyway? I don't know whether that's been served at the canteen at Bodymore, but it's maybe just in their personal life to be more yeah. careful on, on what they take into their bodies. Um, again, it does feel a bit like a meme, but it's been asked by the fans, so I'll put it to you both anyway. Pat, do you think this is any impact of banning desserts and stuff for the players? I think if it, if it was for me, I'd be kicking off a bit, but as a professional <laughs> athlete, I think you've got to just take it with your job, really, haven't you? But, uh, nah, I think it might have been Ollie Watkins that said, oh, they've come in and they've made a lot of rules, and I'm all, I'm all for it. I think the squad needed a bit of a reality check, and if that's mm. banning ketchup and fizzy drinks, so that's what you've got to need to do, start at the bottom and build up. I mean, it could be a lot nastier. I imagine Roy Keane would be a lot more uh, disciplined <laughs> if he came in. I don't think he'd end at fizzy drinks. I do. I do wonder whether this is is actually about the ketchup and the fizzy drinks and the oh, and the, right. and, the, and the and the desserts, and whether it's just a discipline thing that I'm going to come in and, and set these rules and we're going to change the way we do things. Does yeah. Klopp do anything similar, Josh? Do you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Klopp was Klopp was really big on this sort of stuff because he's got a a degree in sports science and stuff, so. He knows all about this, and one of the first appointments Klopp made was to get in. Yeah, I think we, we snatched off um, Bayern Munich to get their head of nutrition, and she came to Liverpool, and we got we also got their um, head of fitness and conditioning. I think so. These sorts of things specifically play a big part when you, if you want to become a pressing team, you know, if you want to cover ground, if you want to do plenty of intense sprints and things like that, it does play a part. And when he went to when he went up to Scotland to first coast Rangers, he made lots of inroads, lots of early easy wins when it comes mm. to just making your team better by just tackling all the departments that were just a bit amateurish, you know, when it comes to like behind the scenes, not just the diets and things like that, but just training facilities and stuff. And I think when it comes to Villa, obviously Villa 
established Premier League side now, so there's, there's less of those immediate gains to be made. But if if he's looked at the whole the whole case and, and deemed you know the diet and the, the nutrition to be an area that's worth dressing, again it's just an easy win and it just sends the it just sends kind of an elite message I think throughout the club that. As you said, I think it's it's mad that players are sitting there eating puddings, to be honest. Yeah, I saw an article with Emil Smith-Rowe, I think, a couple of days ago, and he was saying that he's kind of now seriously started to take his diet well, more seriously. His, his diet was terrible in the, in the seasons up yeah. till this one. And even John McGinn's mentioned about cutting out fizzy drinks and stuff over the summer and, and he's in the best shape of his life. And you do wonder how these elite-level, you know, high-paid Premier League players are, are having such poor lifestyles anyway, but... A lot of them are young kids, aren't they? So yeah. that's that's all they know. So if it takes someone like Gerard to come in and crack the whip and say no more to Mark Ketchup, then if that helps Villa win games somehow, <laughs> I'm absolutely all for it. You know, it's it's a theme that that runs through the elite uh, in in football, whether it's coaches or players or whatever. So if you're going to send that message, I do think it kind of it do, it does send that message that listen. No, I think Gerard's mentioned this a few times actually, but the whole no excuses vibe. Yeah. Um, I think it makes sense, and if they have aspirations to go from where they are at the minute, you know, a tenth, at that team, mid-table type team, to be European side, these are the, I suppose, the one percent. Maybe you could put it down to the differences over the course of a full season. Can we really afford to go into the transfer market and buy more players after three hundred million has been spent since promotion? The likelihood of moving players on, or less for a cut price number. Uh, where we lose out is even more unrealistic. Don't we just need to build a European ready team with what we already have? And we have spent a lot of money, but there was some kind of factors in there to suggest that we have to build a side in the first year in the Premier League. Then this year we've had to replace Grealish. And it does take a lot of money to, to make that step up from, from 10th to 6th, doesn't it? So I expect the Villa will have to spend more money. The managers like to bring in their own players, don't they? They like to mould their squad with who they think can work for their system. Like Dean Smith signed Cash, Watkins. We did. We made 100 Well, we didn't make 100 million, but we received 100 million in the summer. Spent what was it ninety two or what? So effectively, we haven't really spent. I know we have spent a lot, but we haven't like a net spend. We haven't really spent that much. So I think Gerard will one hundred percent be dipping into the transfer market. I think I think it's rumored about fifty million he's got. I think I read somewhere. It's probably going to be attacking the midfield, which I think we all thought over summer would be one of the areas we were going to strengthen a bit more. Yeah, I think it's something that is is going to be a lot easier as well with Gerard seemingly favouring this. You know this four three three system four three. 2-1 you could maybe call it hmm. they seem to favour at Rangers because then if, you, if you're going to stick with that every week which obviously Smith wasn't really doing and Smith seems to replace Grealish by just getting in um, a number of players who could compensate for his quality and for, for the dropping quality rather than building towards a specific system but if with this system that Gerard seems to be establishing the, the positive with that is if you're just playing that every single week you can just gradually over time with each passing window just make the players executing that system better, basically. Mm. So if, say for example, in two windows time, Villa are playing with exactly the same system, but they have a better left-back play in the system and they have a better number eight playing alongside McGinnis. Not that Jacob Ramsey isn't capable, because I think he he really isn't. Given this level, I'm not sure Gerard will actually look to upgrade that, but and Morgan Sanson as well has got potential there, but um, I just think over time, if you're making these upgrades, like Liverpool did this, I know we're not supposed to talk about Liverpool, but <laughs> it's since day one, Klopp selected 4-3-3, and he just builds and builds and built. Now you've got better centre-backs, now you've got Mo Salah instead of 
Lana or whatever it was, and now you've got Allison instead of Minulay, and just gradually you just get better and better without without changing a great de- a de- great degree. You just get better players playing playing for your team. How do Villa follow that up now against Crystal Palace? It's uh, not a first easy five games for Gerard with Brighton, Palace, Leicester, Man City, and forgot the last one not an easy four games um, but how do they follow that up now because as much as that Brighton win was, was good and the clean sheet was important if you go and lose away to Crystal Palace it's almost not worth it is it you've got to go and back that up so how do they do that Pat it's another tough game I think the only people Palace have lost to this season might be Chelsea and Liverpool I don't know if that's certain but I think they're a really good solid they've started really well I used them as an example of how well a manager change can go that fairly unrecognised for the league Signing a Premier League legend, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, they're a good team. I remember my, I've got a friend who's a Wolves fan. He's just and they played. I think they lost one nil to him a few weeks ago, maybe two nil. And he said they were just all over him from start to finish. So I think it's going to be a really competitive battle. They've got good players in Conor Gallagher. I think Eze might be coming back into fitness now. Zaha, it's one of those. I think they're a really talented side, and they're going to be a difficult game. Because you kind of consider that they've had a, a pretty good season so far and Villa had a pretty rubbish season or average season and we're only three points behind them and, yeah. and can, I think, potentially overtake them. I, I don't know what the goal difference is if, if we beat them. Um, Josh, how do you assess this one? Yeah, I've been I've been seriously impressed with Crystal Palace's season, actually. Um, very, very good. And I think, although, although they are where they are on the table, I think twice they conceded with literally the last kick of the game. Uh, I think I watched both games and it was just very, very unlucky. Can you watch that so I can concede in the last minute? <laughs> yeah, possibly, yeah. Um, I don't think I'll watch a lot of Villa this season, actually, but in, in terms of this, this weekend, it's, I think Palace are really, really good, honestly, I do. Um, and I think when it comes to this new approach that Gerard seems to be instilling, where you basically force the opposition to the flanks, Crystal Palace have Christian Benteke up front, um, who was very, very good in the air. Edouard's good in the air. So, and Conor Gallagher is just a genius when it comes to arriving late in the box. So, if they're going to face the same crossing threat that they faced against Brighton, I think you're potentially, you're going to, you're risking a little bit, basically. Um, whether it'll work or not, I'm not sure. But another thing as well on Crystal Palace is their defensive numbers. They currently got the third best defence in the league when it comes to expected goals against. Um, better than Liverpool uh, in fact no I think it's level with Liverpool been expected to concede the same amount of goals as Liverpool so far based on the shots that they've faced so given Villa's strength on the defensive side in the first game and Palace's strength on the defensive side throughout the season I would not be surprised at all if this was 0-0 but you know just the predictions to throw out there could be wrong yeah, they did concede three to Burnley in the last game, so I'm fully expecting a 4 0 Villa win, just for something totally random. Uh, Pat, very quickly, just from you, a score prediction, just for fun. Uh, I'm going to say we'll grind out another 1 0, I think. Not another 1 0, just 1 0. In a while, I thought it was 1 0 the game. Oh, I'll absolutely, absolutely take a clean sheet away at Palace and a 1-0 victory. I think we'll call it a day there, gents. Thank you very much for your time. Josh, thank you as always. I do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, nobody's made. Thanks for having me. Uh, and hopefully I've filled in adequately for James Rushton if you end up watching this James don't don't sack me uh, Pat thanks for your time uh, we you. just give a quick plug to our last foot manager episode that we did uh, yesterday I think it was where we're, we're struggling <laughs> Danny <laughs> has scored one goal in 18 games so we're no better than, uh, than anybody else uh, so you can go back and watch that if you like we'll be back on Saturday evening for a post-match reaction to the Palace game and um, thank you all for watching and we'll see you again in a few days time yeah. thank you
Thank you for listening to AVFC Extra, an additional dose of Aston Villa content for you, brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast team. If you enjoyed the episode, please do get in touch with us, get involved in the comment sections, tweet us at Claret Blue Pod, or leave us a review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. We'll catch you again very soon with some more content. Until then, up the villa. Yeah.